Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy Tino and Mike, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts. Today, we're talking about assessing risk using a strategy developed in the 1600s by a famous mathematician, Blaise Pascal, called Pascal's Wager. If you have any questions, comments, or would like us to discuss something on the show, please email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Tino, you wrote about Pascal's Wager this week. Why don't you uh, get it started with a quick summary of what that actually is? Yeah, you know, Blaise Pascal was, he's a very interesting um, figure in history. He was a very analytical person, very scientific, he was a mathematician, and he did contributions to everything from early days of computer science or what, what became computer science all the way to air pressurization. Now, at the same time, he was also a very devout Catholic. Uh, and, you know, let's be honest, a lot of times those two don't mix. And he was very, very religious and he, and he actually used a, a pretty strong analytical framework to explain why he was religious. And his point was uh, very simple. There's no reason to even try to determine or try to see if God exists or not, because basically what you're doing is you're risking a finite gain for an infinite loss. So let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you believe in God and God exists. All right. So that means you go to heaven at the end, you have an eternal, uh, an eternity of happiness, whatever you want to call it. Now, the cost of that is living a life without sin, okay? So for the however many years you're on the planet, that's a finite cost, all right? You want to go out, have a little too much fun. You want to, you know, sleep in on Sundays, not go to church, whatever it may be. Now, if you don't believe in God and there is no God, then you have a finite gain, right? You've been able to go out and have your fun for a couple of years and that's it. But what if you're wrong? What if there is a God? Even if it's a 0.1% chance, now you're in a situation where you didn't believe in God and you're going to hell, or whatever your religion tells you what's going to happen to you. So his point was, why would you risk a finite gain, just a few years of having fun and sleeping in on Sundays, for a potential infinite loss? It doesn't even matter what the odds are. It seems simplistic, but at the time, it was very, it was very revolutionary. It was a groundbreaking way of, of assessing what we're, what we're talking about almost every other, other episode here is risk. Some risks, his point was, some risks just aren't worth taking, irrespective of the odds, because the downside is just too great. Pascal's wager is something that we use in the investing world almost on a daily basis when we're looking to determine how to size positions, what type of, what type of investments to take, you name it, asset allocation, uh, and investors themselves. It's something that I think in their, they, if they incorporate it in their toolkit, they could get quite a bit out of as well. Sounds like Pascal did a cost-benefit analysis on God. That's basically what he did. And yeah, and, and again, his point is very simple. It's like, look, I don't know if God exists and nobody else does and we never will, but that's irrelevant. Why would you risk a finite gain or why would you aim for a finite gain when you're risking an infinite loss? And let's port that over into investing for a little bit. Let's say you're shorting a stock. Okay. So this is a good example. Now I'm not saying shorting stocks is crazy or, or irrational. What I'm saying is if you're not careful, if you short a stock, the best you can do is that stock goes to zero, okay? You're going to get whatever finite gain that gives you. But we all know what happens when you're wrong on a short, right? Look at GameStop, look at AMC, a lot of these meme stocks, BlackBerry, that are heavily shorted and they've gone the wrong direction. And look what happened to a couple of very prominent hedge funds over the past couple of months because they didn't size their risk properly. You know, and I also want to point out, it's not just a tool for investing. You know, I, I, I'll put Remy on the spot a little bit here. I mean, Remy, I know you're big into motorcycles. And if I remember correctly, you went through a like a Vietnamese jungle on a motorcycle for like 10 days or something like that. Uh, for you, I'm sure that didn't seem like much of a risk because you know how to ride a motorcycle. I've never been on one in my life. If you put me on one in Vietnam, 
I'm dead. So I look at that situation as Pascal's wager and say, okay, my finite gain is, okay, cool. I get to see some trees and some monkeys, but my infinite loss is I end up dead in a ditch somewhere. So a lot of times risk is different on an individual's basis. Seems like Pascal's wager sort of disregards degrees of risk though. It's, it's sort of an all or nothing. You either believe in God or you don't believe in God versus investing where it's more about degrees. No, no, that's very true. And, 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 and full disclosure, there are, there's a lot of called research or I guess criticism out there on Pascal's wager that, it, wager, excuse me, that it is too simplistic. It is not capable of factoring in some of the complexities of decisions that need to be made today. We don't necessarily use it. I mean, you think about how we, how we do our, our risk controls here uh, when we manage portfolios. Uh, let's just say they're slightly more sophisticated than you know, applying a Punnett square to, uh, to a decision. But it is a way to do a very simplistic, quick assessment of a situation, particularly if you need to move quickly on the fly. Well, the basic concept makes all kinds of sense. I remember the first company that I was a, a partner in, I was the youngest guy, I had four other partners, and I was the youngest guy. And I always had all these crazy ideas. I always wanted to try stuff they had never done before. And the oldest partner, every time I would come up with an idea, the first thing out of his mouth is, what's the most we can lose? That was all he cared about. What's the most we can lose? And I thought he was just being cranky at the time because I was young and I didn't have all that much experience, but I find myself saying that to some of the younger people in the office now when they say, hey, we should try this. Like, you know, well, you know, what's it going to cost? What's the most we can lose? And that's, it's the same thing. It's the same concept. Although that's probably only half the question, right? I want to know how much we can lose, but how much can we gain too? Yeah. No, you got to weigh both sides. I mean, well, let's, let's bring that back to investing and not necessarily on, on portfolios, but let's say an asset allocation or, or even a financial planning decision. Look, I mean, if you're 20, 30, 40 years old and you're in all equities, great. You've got many years to, to kind of mitigate that risk. But I think where, where Pascal's wager comes in, into play on asset allocation is that let's say you're entering retirement or you're about to retire and you look at your nest egg and say, you know what? I did it. Whatever that number is, I've hit it. I can retire. I can get everything that I want out of retirement and I'm, I'm set. I'm done. Then the question remains, do I stay in risky assets and try to make more, maybe get a Ferrari or whatever it is and, you know, if, if I get lucky, or do I de-risk and focus more on capital preservation? Now, that, this is a situation where Pascal's wager comes in. Do I really want to risk what I've created for a finite gain, maybe have a nicer car, maybe you know, fly first class a couple more times in retirement if I'm traveling, versus not being able to retire on time or not being, being able to retire at all? I think those types of risk assessments are important. Well, Tino, you're always, you're Mr. Quote guy. What was Warren Buffett had some quote about, you know, never risk something you need for something you don't need. Or I'm sure that's wrong, but it's something like that, isn't it? No, I mean, that's basically, he basically said, you're a fool to risk something that you need for something that you don't. And, and it's, that's so absolutely true is that and it's like looking at these meme stock stories in the, in the news right now. Think about some of the ones that we're reading out there. I'm sure you've, you guys have been seeing the same ones I have. You have some 26 year old who's levered up, maxed out his credit cards, borrowed money from his parents and dumped it all into AMC. And look, I mean, the stories are always seem to be of, of them, of it working and they're making money and they're, you know, they're now meme stock millionaires. But why do you need to do that? But nobody wants to read about the 99% of people that did that, that lost all their money too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And there are people that lose. Look, hey, you know, you, Mike, you mentioned Warren Buffett. There, there used to be, and I wrote about this in the piece, there used to be a third partner between Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. His name was uh, Rick Gerland, I think. And if you hear Warren Buffett talk about Rick, he, he's been quoted saying, look, Rick was just as smart as we were, uh, just as capable. And, and Warren's like, look, we, knew, we all knew we were going to make a lot of money. We knew we were going to be incredibly rich. He said the difference was that Rick was in a hurry. So what Rick did was he margined up, he, he took on uh, margin loans and he bought a bunch of stocks and then 
What happened in the early 70s? Well, the market tanked 70%. And when that happened, he got a margin call and take a guess what he had to do. He had to take Berkshire Hathaway A shares at less than $40 a share and sell them to Warren Buffett. Take a guess what those shares were today. I think they're trading like yeah, 470,000 like a share, something crazy. Yeah, whatever the number is. So, you know, you know, Mike, you go back to this, you mentioned this earlier, it almost doesn't matter what the odds are. Add to that, there are just certain questions that doesn't matter how smart you are, right? Rick Gerland is probably not a dummy. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett's incredibly bright. He's a genius. But there are certain things that intelligence just are not going to solve for you. And I think this is one of them. And a lot of times, risks out there, to Pascal's point, you can't reason through. There is no analytical process to solve. I entered my brief college career as a philosophy major. What I'll say is I, I think the word need is pretty subjective. So in your first example, where you have somebody who has saved for retirement, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about retirement a few weeks ago, somebody who may have saved for retirement their whole life, and they're able to essentially pay their bills and live the rest of their life without working, and they're sitting on the beach, and they've made it through, well, for Tino, 72 hours, and for Remy, a, a month. We, we found that out a few weeks ago. And, and, they, and they get bored. What is your need at that point? You may no longer have a financial need, but you have an emotional need. You have a there's a psychological need to go do something, and you may not actually have enough money to do that. So the word need isn't necessarily always a financial term. You know, when we're talking about things like this, you know, there may be an emotional or a psychological need that that needs to be weighed too. So, and and I think that's where it gets significantly more difficult. I think when we're talking about financial need, it's an either or. It's pretty black and white, right? It's either I need this or I don't need this. I need the Ferrari. I don't need the Ferrari. Uh, it's that's a that's a pretty easy decision to make. But when we're talking about psychological and, and emotional needs and, and what you need to, to be happy, you know, that, that starts to take on a different form. And, and that's where I think you can start to get into some trouble. Have you guys ever see, uh, heard the uh, normalization of deviance thing about the, the challenger, space shuttle challenger? Somebody makes a decision. You know, I, I think it was what it was the O-rings that failed on this thing. And it was because they tested where the tolerances are and they fall a little tiny bit outside of that tolerance. And somebody's under pressure to get the launch done. So they let it slide and nothing negative happens. And then the next time it doesn't feel like it's a bigger risk, so they do it again. And pretty soon that, that little bit of deviance becomes normal. And when it lines up with some other things that probably don't go right, you know, you have a catastrophe. Those deviations become normal and then they, they don't perceive the risk anymore. And I, I think that sort of ties into this a little bit and what we're talking about. Oh, I think it does for sure. And, and, and add to that, I mean, this is a little bit of what I think Remy was talking about earlier, the, the, the psychology of, of risk. I mean, there are a lot of people out there. Let's be honest, optimism generally pays more than pessimism. I mean, markets tend to go up. You know, the world doesn't end all that often. All the stuff we talk about here. But, you know, that was, I was actually listening to a great podcast the other day on Farnham Street. I uh, had Jim Collins on that, a very famous author. And he was talking about, uh, I guess, a discussion he had with Jim Stockdale, the, the POW. Uh, I'm actually pulling up a quote from that, from the transcript. I'm going to read it real quick. I said, this is what I learned from those years in the prison camp where all of those constraints were just oppressive. You must never confuse on one hand the need for absolute unwavering faith that you can prevail despite those constraints with, on the other hand, the need for the discipline to begin by confronting the brutal facts, whatever they are. And I think what he was pointing to here is that, you know, you, you can't just, you know, he said that basically the ones in the camp that did the worst were the ones that actually thought they, you know, they were going to get out. They were, they were eternal optimists. That nothing could ever go wrong. And their, their spirit was crushed. I mean, you got to have, a, I think, a realistic view of your situation. And look, bad things can happen. We talked about the probabilities earlier. The probability that the GameStop surged to, or AMC surged 2,000% this year. The probabilities, and it's got to be in the billions. 
but it happened. And these things happen all the time. We talk about black swans. Black swans happen all the time. And you got to accept the fact that they can happen. Do you think that from our side, we don't do an adequate job of, of convincing people that they are not as unlikely as they think they are? Because we do see people take risks. We see people come in with portfolios all the time that are far too risky for their stage in life. They don't perceive that they're, they're doing something crazy. You know, they see the news. They see, you know, the S&P always goes up or whatever. I think a lot of that's re- what we call recency bias, right? I mean, the market keeps going up to your point and it's been going up for over a year. You, f- you kind of forget the markets could go down after a while. You know, we, we had the same thing. Or for that matter, how, you know, Mike, and you, you talk to clients all the time. How, how do you convince someone after the financial crisis to, 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 go, to go heavy into equities during an economic rebound? You know, it's hard because they, they've been shaped by it. The interesting thing is that when I talk to clients, the more difficult conversations are actually when the market is going up and not when the market is going down, Mm. right? Because unless you capture 100% of what they perceive you should capture in a return, they're not happy about it. You know, the, the market's going crazy. All they hear is good news. People are getting rich on stupid things, collectibles and, and GameStop and all kinds of stuff that, that, that there's no logical reason for people getting rich on. And they feel like they're missing out. And they feel like the market's up, you know, whatever it is. Somebody just made 300% on GameStop. How come I only made 22% last year? You know, they're not as grumpy when the market goes down as long as they didn't suffer as big a loss as whatever the market suffered. If the market's down 10% and, and we have a review and we say, yeah, you're down, but you're down 3% when the market was down 10, they're happy. They've lost money, but they're happy. But if they're not up as much as the rest of the market, they're grumpy. I think what the average client doesn't understand is your mitigation is different. When the market's going down, you're mitigating financial loss. When the market's going up and you say, hey, you know what, you might want to move out of this because it can only go up for so long, you're mitigating risk. I guess it goes to the, the behavioral finance thing, right? It's, it's how do people perceive loss versus gain. You know, one is disproportionate to the other. The same amount of loss, you know, 5% loss, 5% gain, they, they see it disproportionately. They fear a 5% loss more than they enjoy a 5% gain. It's weird. So Tino, back to that Vietnam trip. I lost a tooth and got four stitches on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> worth every second. Yeah. I always feel uh, my, my view on risk is when it comes to money, most times you could make it back, uh, but I'm not willing to risk my body for, for that. I, I'm not jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> I'm not riding motorcycles. I just, that's not my thing. So Remy, when you put the video clip on LinkedIn, like you do most weeks, I think you should put that picture of yourself that I've seen with, with your, with your tooth missing and your, your bloody face. It's a pretty, pretty rough picture. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to uh, put a disclaimer on that. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.